Welcome to Theology with Dr. A.M. Hackney. This podcast is focused on the vocational calling of Christians to be theologians. You'll find episodes on systematic theology, spiritual formation, scriptural interpretation, and ethics. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Hackney. In today's episode, I'm introducing listeners to my favorite female theologian from the Reformation era, Argula von Grumbach. Today's podcast is in collaboration with the Women in Theology Research Database. You can find the database at womeninTheology.com. Well, good morning, listeners. It is a beautiful Friday morning. Today, we're going to talk about my favorite female theologian from the Reformation. Her name is Argula von Grumbach. And we're going to look at her writing, and we're going to talk about how she reads and interprets scripture. And what's going to happen is after this episode, this is going to lead us into a future episode where I'm going to look at how women in the Reformation read and interpreted scripture. So stay tuned for that episode. But I do want to introduce you to my favorite female theologian. She is feisty. She is a close reader of scripture. And as I was doing my seminary studies and my PhD studies, she became my hero. And so in order to talk about Argula and her writing today, we're going to start with a brief sketch of the Reformation and its significance. I'm going to give you some biographical information about Argula von Grumbach. And then in the final portion of our podcast, we're actually going to look closely at one of her letters and unpack what she's doing there. So let's talk about the Reformation. Let's talk about this setting in which Argula von Grumbach was writing. So the Reformation brought a new freedom to Christians. With the proclamation of the priesthood of all believers, meaning that no person needed a priest as mediator for access to God, and with the push to translate the Bible into the vernacular so that all literate people could read and understand the Bible for themselves, an equalizing spirit swept through the Reformation. On a spiritual level, at least, women were equal to men. From the preface to the Great Bible written by Thomas Cranmer, to Erasmus, to Luther, and to Calvin, we have examples of women being praised for their knowledge of scripture, women being encouraged to read scripture for themselves, and for women to know Jesus. Take, for example, this quote from Erasmus. He writes, I should prefer that all women, even of the lowest rank, should read the evangelists and the epistles of Paul. Indeed, the Protestant Reformation encouraged and pushed for universal education for both boys and girls so that they could learn to read scripture for themselves. In light of this new, quote-unquote, egalitarian theology, women from a variety of backgrounds found a voice and entered into the action of proclaiming the gospel and wrestling with the new theology of justification by faith. Historian David Frankfurter notes that at the advent of the Reformation, many women comprehended immediately what it was about, embraced its faith, preached its message, and encouraged its leaders. Unfortunately, the response from the leaders of the Reformation to these women actively participating in preaching and teaching was not always entirely positive. More often than not, the women who chose to write, preach, and teach were met with invectives, attempts to expunge their writings, and silence. The watchword during the Reformation is is a phrase, sola scriptura. 
sola scriptura, scripture alone. And, and this doesn't mean that Christians are called to read scripture and nothing else. Instead, what it means is that scripture and not experience, reason, tradition, a pope, a magisterium, a head pastor, but scripture should be the final authority in all matters of faith and ethics. There is a growth and nuancing to the understanding of, of the sola scriptura, and it didn't spring fully formed. But we do know that it was first enunciated as early as 1519. And Gerald Bray notes that in general, sola scriptura meant that scripture was the only rule in matters of faith, so that whatever could not be proved by it could not be required as an article of belief necessary for salvation. There are key developments that are happening at the same time during the Reformation that relates both to scripture and to Argula von Grumbach's significance today. First, at the Reformation, there's an increased use of the vernacular in worship. Local languages were being used in church. Latin was still used as the language of scholarship, but more and more often, local languages were at the heart of worship and at discussions of theology in the church. In a previous episode, I was recommending systematic theology textbooks, and we had a brief discussion about Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And there I talked about how Calvin actually wrote the Institutes twice. He wrote it in Latin, and he wrote it in French. And it's interesting to see the nuance of difference between the two volumes. The, the version in Latin was written for scholars, for pastors, for trained academics. The French version was written for people in the church who may not have had a theologically trained pastor in their midst. And so this sense of writing for the people, worshiping and putting worship in the context of the local people was very much at the heart of what was happening when the Reformation got off the ground. Related to this is that there was an increasing number of Bibles written in the vernacular in the years leading up to the Reformation. This is where we have William Tyndale, for example. Martin Luther began his German translation of the Bible in 1524. And this is important for our discussion of Argula von Grumbach because she grew up with a translation of the Bible in German. And this was before Martin Luther even started writing his translation. She grew up with the Koberger Bible. And so we'll talk about that. And it's really interesting because one of the things we'll look at is Argula actually addresses the hypothetical question, what happens if Martin Luther is wrong? Does her argument fall apart since she has hitched her wagon, as it were, so closely to the theology and personality of Martin Luther? The key hermeneutical question during this Reformation period was whether and how scripture was to be interpreted. Was it self-interpreting or did it require some sort of teacher to make it plain, some sort of authority? And was that teaching then at the same level of authority as scripture itself? And so we have a really robust theology of what we call the analogy of faith. 
The analogy of faith is that whatever we say about the difficult passages, it should be in keeping with what the clearer parts of scripture have already made plain. So we interpret the more difficult passages by way of the clearer passages of scripture. And so in a few moments, we're going to take a look at an excerpt from Argula's writings. And I want you to keep two questions in mind. First, where do you see sola scriptura at work in her letter? And where do you see the analogy of faith at work in her letter? So why Argula von Grumbach? Well, with the invention of the printing press in the 15th century, the cost of publishing decreased significantly, making it relatively easy for people to have their ideas published. The most common form of publishing in the 16th and 17th centuries was pamphlets because they could be mass-produced at a reasonable cost and distributed widely. Access to the printing press was not limited to the academic elite, but available to anyone who could pay. This, alongside of the equalizing force of the Reformation's emphasis on the priesthood of believers, meant that, according to Paul Russell, common people had a means to influence public opinion beyond the local marketplace and tavern, independent of established authority. And if this sounds familiar to social media today, there may be a correlation there. The advent of Twitter, of Substack, of different platforms in order for the common people to have a voice and so that it's not just the elite seems to be a theme through Western civilization. But in terms of the printing press and our discussion of Argula von Grumbach, here's the connection. Peter Matheson argues that Argula von Grumbach was the first Protestant woman writer, perhaps the first woman publicist ever, to harness the printing press to her cause. One of the reasons we have her writings is because she published regularly. Not only did she publish her letters, but she was so sure of the rightness of her position that she would publish the opposing viewpoint letter alongside her response so that people could judge for themselves. We might compare her a little bit to a modern-day advocacy or watchman blogger who tries to bring light to a situation that would otherwise remain private. And this is where her confidence lies, is that she had no problem using her own money to publish the opposing side's point of view and packaging it in a pamphlet booklet with her response or commentary to it. I first discovered Argula von Grumbach in seminary. In my Reformation history class, I wrote my final paper on invectives against women in the Reformation period. I liked Argula because she was feisty and she took scripture so seriously. She may not have had formal training as a theologian or as an exegete, but she immersed herself in Lutheran theology and sought to live out the principles of the Protestant Reformation. As I moved into my PhD studies, Argula's passion and confidence continued to inspire me. She has become one of my favorite go-to examples of women who understand that theology is the vocational calling of all Christians. The best biography of Argula von Grumbach is Peter Matheson's Argula von Grumbach, A Woman's Voice in the Reformation. You can find the citation entry for this in the Women in Theology Research Database. Not only does Matheson tell the story of von Grumbach's life, he also includes English translations of her writings. 
In what follows, I engage with and summarize Matheson's presentation of Argula von Grumbach and her historical circumstances. So Argula von Grumbach was born Argula von Stauffen. She lived approximately from 1492 to 1544. There is some debate about this. She may have died as late as 1563 or 1568. There's some references in history to a woman of Bavarian nobility living out in the countryside that may or may not be Argula von Grumbach. But she married Friedrich von Grumbach in 1516, and he was not a fan of her enthusiasm for Protestantism, which was a source of tension in an already unhappy marriage. So she was married to Friedrich from 1516 to 1530, and then in 1533, she marries Count von Schlick, and they were married just for two years or so. From childhood, she owned a copy of the Koberger Bible. This is the Bible in German, and it was published in 1483, which was about 40 years before Martin Luther began his translation. Argula von Grumbach ended up, in light of the events we're going to talk about momentarily, making a connection with Martin Luther. She corresponded, visited, and worked alongside him to advance the Protestant cause. Luther gives her the strangest compliment when he refers to her as a sinful daughter of Adam who has been converted and made a daughter of Christ. How's that for a compliment? And elsewhere, he gives her the title Christi Discipula, a disciple of Christ. Luther gets wind of her struggles that we're going to talk about in just a minute, and he laments at all that this most pious woman has had to put up with and suffer. So Martin Luther is aware of her. Martin Luther sees her as a sister in Christ and a sister in the cause of the Protestant Reformation. So let's talk about what some of these struggles were, because they are quite significant. In 1523, Having witnessed a young student at the University of Ingolstadt being charged with heresy for embracing Lutheran theology, Argula von Grumbach came to the defense of the student by writing a letter to the university denouncing the leadership for being hypocritical and greedy. This letter was then published by Argula and circulated publicly. The administrators of the university were furious that Argula dared to involve herself in the affairs of the university. Her husband lost his job as an administrator, and the family was banned from Dietfurt as a result of her letter-writing campaign. George Hauer, a theologian at the university, responded to Argula's letter by preaching an angry sermon about the wretched children of Eve. Turning specifically to Argula, he denounced her as being a female desperado, a wretched and pathetic daughter of Eve, an arrogant devil, and, pardon the language here, he calls her a heretical bitch. Argula refused to back down, and even though she had received death threats, she sent a letter to the city council, which included a copy of her original letter to the university, in which she tried to clarify the purpose of her original letter. Not only did the theologians at the university want, quote-unquote, the silly bag tamed, but her uncle, Adam von Theory, was angry that her unladylike behavior had brought shame on their family's name, and he wanted her, quote, walled up for good. So notice the response 
to Argula's letter writing campaign. The most sustained invective against Argula came in the form of a pseudonymous poem written by Johann of Lonshut, who was supposedly a student at the university. Peter Matheson suggests that it was more likely written by a pastor or a theologian at the university and notes that the poem was printed by a printer who regularly printed George Howard's sermons. This poem by Johann of Lanschut not only ridiculed Argula for failing to show womanly restraint, it charged her with purposefully deceiving her readers through the twisting of scripture, and it concludes with a call to put her back in her proper place, and if she does not obey, she may face an untimely death. So not only do we have invectives against her, but we actually have death threats. So what I want to do today is look at some excerpts from her letter to the University of Ingolstadt. And what I want us to pay attention to is not the politics, not whether or not Argula was in the right or wrong of the situation by injecting herself into the, the situation at the university, but I want us to pay attention to how she's reading and interpreting scripture and how she's building her argument in this letter. And so we're going to read some brief sections and I'm going to offer some commentary at the end of each of these sections. So this is the heading to the letter. The account of a Christian woman of the Bavarian nobility whose open letter with arguments based on divine scriptures criticizes the University of Ingolstadt for compelling a young follower of the gospel to contradict the word of God. So quite forceful there. So let's listen to this first excerpt. The Lord says, John 12, I am the light that has come into the world, that none who believe in me should abide in darkness. It is my heartfelt wish that this light should dwell in all of us and shine upon all callous and blinded hearts. Amen. I find there is a text in Matthew 10 which runs, Whoever confesses me before another, I too will confess before my heavenly Father. And Luke 9, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, I too will be ashamed of when I come in my majesty, etc. Words like these, coming from the very mouth of God, are always before my eyes, for they exclude neither woman nor man. And this is why I am compelled as a Christian to write to you. For Ezekiel 33 says, if you see your brother's sin, reprove him, or I will require his blood at your hands. In Matthew 12, the Lord says, All sins will be forgiven, but the sin against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, neither here nor in eternity. And in John 6, the Lord says, My words are spirit and life. How in God's name can you and your university expect to prevail when you deploy such foolish violence against the word of God, when you force someone to hold the holy gospel in their hands for the very purpose of denying it, as you have in the case of Seehofer, when you confront him with an oath and declaration such as this and use imprisonment and even the threat of the stake to force him to deny Christ and his word? So that's our first excerpt. And I want you to notice some things here, and, and maybe you've noticed some things too, and I'd love to hear about it. So tweet your reflections to me on Twitter. You can follow me at, at CW Theology. But notice how she's running quotations of scripture together. And she's weaving different passages together. So we have John 12, Matthew 10, Luke 9, Ezekiel 33, Matthew 12, and John 6. 
all of these are woven together to talk about this idea of confession and speaking true and this impetus to write and to speak. Let's look at, a, at another brief section. One knows very well the importance of one's duties to obey the authorities. But where the word of God is concerned, neither Pope, Emperor, nor Princes, as Acts 4 and 5 make so clear, have any jurisdiction. Haven't you read the first chapter of Jeremiah where the Lord says to him, What do you see? He says, I see a vigilant rod. Says the Lord, You see correctly, for I am ceaselessly vigilant in order to bring my words to pass. He asks again, What else do you see? I see a burning pot and the face of God before midnight. Says the Lord, You have seen correctly, for from midnight every evil will be revealed to every inhabitant of the earth. The pot burns, and truly you and your university will never extinguish it. And neither the Pope with his decretals, nor Aristotle, who has never been a Christian, nor you yourselves can manage it. You may imagine that you can defy God, cast down his prophets and apostles from heaven, and banish them from the world. This shall not happen. I beseech you, my dear masters, let him stay. Have no doubt about it. God will surely preserve his holy and blessed word, as he has hitherto declared, has done in the Old and New Testament, still does, and will continue to do. What stood out to you in this second paragraph? I like the extended summary of uh, the opening of Jeremiah, right? And notice how she weaves that, that image of a burning pot into the situation at hand. The pot burns and truly you and your university will never extinguish it. They cannot thwart God's will. Clearly, she is very Lutheran, very Protestant. Not only does she disparage the Pope, but also Aristotle, which probably means this is a jab at Aquinas, because if you've read the Summa, he draws very heavily on Aristotle. And so I like this comment where she says, uh, nor, nor Aristotle, who has never been a Christian. And, and we can talk about that. I actually like the Summa. I actually like Aristotle. I do virtue ethics as part of my spiritual formation research. And it's at the heart of my ethical system. But it's just interesting to see that she is clearly versed in the key ideas and key sources of the day. Let's turn to another passage. Argula writes, However, I suppressed my inclinations Heavy of heart, I did nothing. Because Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, the woman should keep silence and should not speak in church. But now that I cannot see any man who is up to it, who is either willing or able to speak, I am constrained by the saying, whoever confesses me, as I said above, and I claim for myself Isaiah 3, I will send children to be their princes, and women or those who are womanish shall rule over them. And Isaiah 29, those who err will know knowledge in their spirit, and those who mutter will teach the law. And Ezekiel 20, I raise up my hand against them to scatter them. They never followed my judgments, they rejected my commandments, and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. Therefore I gave them commandments, but no good ones, and judgments by which they could never live. And Psalm 8, you have ordained praise out of the mouth of children and infants at the breast on account of your enemies. 
and Luke 10. Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, Father, I give you thanks that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to the little ones. Jeremiah 3, they will all know God from the least to the greatest. John 6 and Isaiah 54, they will all be taught of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus without the Spirit of God. Just as the Lord says of the confession of Peter in Matthew 16, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. Do you hear any of this? That it is God who gives us understanding, not any human being? As Paul too says in 1 Corinthians 2, your faith should not be in human wisdom. You, with your papal laws, will not be able to coerce us, not by a long chalk. We have witness enough from Scripture that they have no right to make laws without God's command. As Jeremiah 23 says, Where, however, it is based in the Bible, the book which contains all God's commands, we will be pleased and happy to accept it. But where it is not, it has no validity for us at all or only in so far as it is my duty to spare my weak and foolish brother until he too has been instructed. For God says, Deuteronomy 4, add nothing to my word and subtract nothing from it. And Proverbs 30, add nothing to the words of God, lest you be reproved and be found a liar. I like how she addresses head-on 1 Timothy 2, that women should keep silent and should not speak in church. What do we do with this? Her answer is to look at more scripture. And in this case, what her argument is, there's no man who is standing up to speak the truth of God, to proclaim the word of God in this situation. And so in this case, whatever 1 Timothy 2 says, there are all these other verses that talk about the need to confess Christ. What I find fascinating is how much she's drawing on the Old Testament and she's weaving things together, Isaiah, Psalms, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and then putting that alongside and weaving it with Corinthians and Matthew, with 1 Timothy and Deuteronomy and Proverbs. So it's kind of interesting. She's just reading scripture to them over and over again. One last section just to go to get a sense of Argula and her writing and her approach to scripture. I do not flinch from appearing before you, from listening to you, from discussing with you. For by the grace of God, I too can ask questions, hear answers, and read in German. There are, of course, German Bibles, which Martin has not translated. You yourselves have one, which was printed 41 years ago, which when Luther's was never even thought of. If God had not ordained it, I might behave like the others and write or say that Luther perverts scripture, that it is contrary to God's will. Although I have yet to read anyone who is equal in his equal in translating it into German. May God who works all this in him be his reward here in time and in eternity. And even if it come to pass, which God forfend, that Luther were to revoke his views, that would not worry me. I do not build upon his, mine, or any person's understanding, but on the true rock, Christ himself, which the builders have rejected. But he has been made the foundation stone and the head of the corner, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. No other base can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ. 
there's a couple of interesting things to note here. First, she draws on the fact that she is capable of engaging in dialogue and debate. She is educated. She can read the scriptures. And a lot of the controversy that's happening at the University of Ingolstadt is about Martin Luther. So she goes to the fact that, actually, we've had a German translation of the Bible for 40 years. And what's fascinating is that even if Martin Luther turns out to be wrong, that doesn't change Argula's argument because her argument isn't based on Martin Luther or on herself. It's based on the foundation of Christ and his word. And so notice how her impetus to speak, her ability to challenge the authority comes not from herself or from the Protestant cause or from Martin Luther, but from scripture. In the passage that I read, the very first one, there's a line that says, words like these coming from the very mouth of God are always before my eyes, for they exclude neither woman nor man. There's a different translation of this line quoted in Paul Russell's Lay Theology in the Reformation. You can find that resource in the Women in Theology database. But his translation reads like this, The word of God is constantly before my eyes, reminding me of my obligation to confess Christ, an obligation from which neither man nor woman is excluded. This declaration by Argula von Grumbach that the word of God is constantly before my eyes, reminding me of my obligation to confess Christ, an obligation from which neither man nor woman is excluded, has become my declaration as I have studied and continue to study scripture. It is my prayer as I teach as I write, as I raise my kids, as I live in community in my local church. I pray that my students, my readers, my kids, my brothers and sisters in Christ will immerse themselves and be immersed by scripture, and that they will confess Christ in all that they do. Sursum corda, lift up your hearts. (laughs) 